Praise God. Um, it's good to see everyone this afternoon. Uh, trust that you're well. It's a blessing to be here as we um, resume normal programming after our Christmas interlude. Um, just really encouraged by the great giveaway series and everyone who contributed to that and just what a blessing that's been and just what a blessing the whole festive season has been. And um, for those who don't know, we are given to um, teaching through the scriptures. And so going through the chapters, um, really endeavoring to understand the author's original intent, what was the writer saying to the people who originally received it um, in such a way that we might learn the heart of God, not just to them, but through them to us, um, for us today. And so we're in the book of John. Um, we are, um, I don't know if I would say halfway, I don't know how to quantify that, but we're well into our series, Superman HD, being, speaking of Jesus, he is the Superman, um, HD being human and yet divine, the God-man. And so we're um, getting up close and personal with Jesus, as recorded by the Apostle John. And um, today we arrive at John chapter 15. And, um, you know, as I, I've been going over this text and so on, it's really, really, really been speaking to me in, in different ways. And um, I almost didn't, share it today um, because yesterday I said goodbye to my stepmother who went to be with the Lord. And so um, she was in a hospice in Sydenham and she was very unwell. And I actually found out she was in the hospice or yeah, where she was yesterday morning. And then Judith and I went over there with her um, and just spent some time. And then after leaving, um, got a call saying that she had, she had gone home. And, um, you know, I, I communicated with, with Rob, and as ever, brother's always got my back. He was like, bro, don't watch that. Tomorrow's covered. Uh, I'll deal with it. But um, I just really felt that, actually, the Lord, this is the best place for me for a, a lot of reasons, as we'll see as we look at the text. Um, this is the reality of the Christian life, dealing with hardship, dealing with difficulty, and we see that communicated in the text and that there's actually something glorious at work in that. Um, also, I think it's a real fitting tribute to my stepmother um, because she was very instrumental in me coming to the Lord. And so you've heard me talk about the fact that I was brought up with my grandmother and, um, you know, my grand taught me to church um, before, I, you know, I could even talk. And, you know, I was in church whether I wanted to be or not. And, you know, that was my experience growing up. But when I got to my teen my early teens, um, I, I, was, I spent um, a few years living with my stepmother, um, probably about three or four years. And um, she was directly instrumental in my dad coming to the Lord, um, which in itself was nothing short of a miracle because he was Antichrist. Not the Antichrist. <laughs> Let's just make that clear. But he was antichrist by his own admission, um, very antichrist. And um, he came to faith before I did, which had a real um, impact on me. 
and um, and then through mum, um, I too was impacted and really came to that place of surrender to Christ. So, you know, this is a real testimony to her legacy, me being able to stand here today and share the word of the Lord. And, you know, I say that this is the reality of the Christian life. Um, I, I'm sure that I, I don't need to take a poll or a survey to see if you agree. Um, the Christian life is full of hardship. And it can impact us in different ways. You know, there are times when we can feel as if we've been cut off from God. Um, we can feel as if God doesn't favor us. God doesn't hear us when we pray. That God doesn't love us. Like, what is the point of this? And even feel as though we want to kind of throw in the towel. And yet, as we look at John 15 today, um, we'll see, um, you know, the Lord's response to that. Um, it also helps us as we consider those who um, we have maybe fellowshiped with personally or who we have known of, and we see them turn away and reject the Lord. And, you know, we're often rocked by such occasions and such occurrences, and we're, we're sh- even shaken by it. And we think to ourselves, if somebody who was so for the Lord can can turn away how secure am i i mean am i even like gonna last am i even gonna go the distance and so again i I really believe that that um the text um gives us some help in that regard and so um let's read john 15 verses 1 to 11 and i'll pray I am the true vine, and my my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Father God, we thank you for this precious promise of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the fact that, Lord, you have revealed your heart to us. And um, in doing so, Lord, I trust that you would help to instruct and establish us in you as we... Seek after your face. Lord, I realize that 
Um, we're all here ultimately knowing that it is your word that is the centerpiece of our gathering. And um, I do pray and trust that, Lord, you will speak by your Holy Spirit to each of our hearts through your word that we might know you better and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, the context, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. It's the final 24 hours of his life, and he's preparing them for his departure. And as he's doing so, he's uh, establishing some principles. And we see the Apostle John in a, in a way that um, is unique in that the other gospel writers don't approach it like this. He, he, he captures in great detail the conversation of our Lord in this time. And at this point in the conversation, Jesus draws on the metaphor of the vine. Um, think grapevine. And obviously, we're city dwellers, right? We're urbanites. So we may not even know what a grapevine is or looks like. You know, we drink grape juice, we drink wine, some of us, myself included, what can I say? In moderation, don't drink and drunk. Um, we drink wine, but in terms of actually, you know, where do, how does it get to us? Where does it come from? Um, you know, the, the, the most we might be thinking about is the, the little grapes that we get in the packets from the, the supermarkets and the little stems that they run, and we think that's a grapevine, right? Well, we'll be surprised. Jesus draws on the metaphor of the grapevine, one which would have been very familiar to the, um, the disciples. And as he does so, he conjures up an image, ultimately, that is towards the purpose of considering true fruitfulness and true health. True fruitfulness and true health. Um, now, it might be helpful to us to actually see the kind of vine that Jesus may have been referring to. Um, do any of you know where the biggest grapevine in the world is? You might be surprised. The biggest grapevine in the world. Did you actually say Jamaica? <laughs> Hold tight, my sister. <laughs> because it's not in Jamaica, but I'm glad that you would think of Jamaica as being the place of the biggest vine. Still. The biggest vine in the world is actually, it's, it's, in the, it's not even just in the UK, but it's in London. You imagine that? Shame on you all, Londoners in that. <laughs> Furthermore, it's in South London. <laughs> Lord. Brixton. <laughs> <laughs> now Brixton, now Frontline. <laughs> um, well, I know that they're, they're on some other herbs down there, but they ain't. <laughs> So um, hopefully this comes up. This is a picture, it was a picture, of the biggest 
grapevine in the world, the biggest. And it's, it's actually, let me, I think it might be this engine, I don't know. It's actually in Hampton Court. Yeah, Hampton Court. That's not South London. I'm claiming it, sister. Why are you going to burst my bubble? I'm claiming it. It's, it's South London, how you mean? I swear you could get there on a the tube. From you could get there on a the tube, it's legit, it's London. <laughs> All right, it's south of Greater London. But this is the biggest vine. This is one vine. Um, uh, 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 the, 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 the numbers that I saw was like, it's about 35 meters. Um, in the, it, it may well be bigger than that at the, at the point. So that, that's, that's in London. And so you can see that this, isn't, this, this doesn't really bear a resemblance to what we get in our packets. Grapevines are very hardy plants. Very rugged and robust plants. This vine is probably a couple hundred years old. The oldest vine in the world is in a place called Slovenia. And this vine is said to be over 400, almost 450 years old. Now, some of us struggle with almost green fingers, have plants in our house here, here today, a couple of weeks later, things wilted, died, we, like, we just don't understand. And so, you know, as you think about that experience and you think about a vine, a plant that can last 450 years. And so you see the, 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 the trunk, if you like, of the, the vine there um, going up and then the trestle upon which the actual branches of the vine are interweaved and grown. And so... That's one vine, and that's a picture of the kind of thing that Jesus would have been referring to and the kind of thing that the, um, the, the, the disciples would have understood to be what Jesus was referring to, you know? Now, Jesus refers to himself as the vine and his father as the vine dresser or as the gardener. And... He goes on to say, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He being the father who is the vine dresser, the one who attends to the vine. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So from the outset, there's an expectation that this vine is to be productive. And we look at verse 2 and there can be a, it can be very easy for us to look at it and immediately just be thinking, wow, that's hard, that's cold. Straight away there's cutting going on. There's, there's chopping going on. If there's no fruit, the branch is getting cut off. If there is fruit, you're getting pruned. You're still getting cut either way. Now, what we have to appreciate is the backstory always helps why was there this expectation that the vine would be fruitful that's not clearly communicated apart from the fact that within the culture they know vines grown are grown to produce or to bear fruit that's what they exist for 
And if we look at verse 1 and consider that Jesus is the vine, we would expect Jesus to be a fruitful vine. I want to share a few verses with you from Isaiah because this serves to um, give clarity to the, this expectation that the vine would be fruitful. Isaiah chapter 5. And I actually refer to this, if you remember, um, in my teaching at the Christmas service. Um, but I, I refer to the latter part of this chapter where people were getting drunk and raving and so on um, and enjoying affluence and so on. But this is, this is the um, first verses of that section. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. A man's going to sing a love song about a vineyard. You're like, bro, like, get a life, man. But vineyards were very precious and were very valuable. I mean, even now you can imagine people talk about fine wine. You know, it's one of those things that the, 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 the well-off and the wealthy um, kind of glorying. Yes, I have this 100-year-old bottle of Suavenor or whatever, the, you know what I mean? Whatever their, 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 their big, boy, big boy wines are going to be. Yeah? And, 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 and that's a real, like, that's a real um, status symbol for them. Now, you have to remember that wine comes from the vine. So if the bottle can be regarded with such um, high esteem and value, how much more the, the vineyard from which it comes? And so, even in the time of Isaiah and this being written, they had an appreciation for the value. It was, it was an income-generating um, possession for, for anyone who owned one. It was a, a business and it was also a, a, a source of sustenance being provided. Food and drink comes from the vineyard. Grapes and wine. So it might seem strange that they're singing a song about a vineyard. But at the same time, this isn't just any vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. And planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Grapes that ain't good to eat. Grapes that ain't good to press for wine. Bitter. Crusty. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge between me and my vineyard. So this is actually the Lord talking about his vineyard. Yeah. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. 
I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so, this metaphor of the vine is age old and very well known to the Jews. Very well known to Israel. Especially in view of the fact that God is the gardener who has planted the vineyard and has expected fruit from it. Expected fruit from Israel, fruit that he never got. And so, there was still a promise yet to be fulfilled. There was still an expectation that remained. And just as much as he says in verse 7 there, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, everything that he spoke about that would happen to his vineyard was being promised to happen to them because they were fruitless. Removing its hedge, it being devoured, breaking down its wall, being trampled down, being made a waste, not pruned or hold, briars and thorns. A wasteland, a barrenness. So Jesus comes and he says, well, I am the vine? No, he doesn't even just say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. And who is he speaking to? Israelites. He's speaking to men of Judah. He's speaking to Jews who would have identified themselves and recognized themselves to be the vineyard of God's planting. But Jesus is saying, you guys haven't got it. I am the true vine. I am the fulfillment of the Father's expectation. I am the vineyard over whom he sings his song. And so he's denoting the setting aside, the setting aside of Judaism and all the expectations of it being fulfilled in him. Remember, he's preparing the disciples for his departure. And he's establishing clearly that it's all about him. That it's no longer about Judaism, but he is not annulling, but he is fulfilling or completing the expectation. Because he himself as a Jew has come, the son of God, to fulfill the father's expectation. And so we see that, you know what, there are many beliefs in this world and none of them more potent and more rich in heritage than Judaism. You know, we see Rastafarians borrow from the Old Testament. It's interesting that they never really touched the New Testament, right? 
we see even Islam has characters and events of the Old Testament in common in their writings. And all other spin-off beliefs and sects and so on. And yet, none of them can claim to be the true vine. Only Jesus has made and substantiated that claim. He is the true vine. And so in him, there will be fruitfulness. That is non-negotiable. It's going to happen. And hence, the expectation that branches who are connected to him will bear fruit. Now, if a branch doesn't bear fruit, it gets taken away. We understand even from Isaiah that God has invested. What is it that he said? What was there left for me to do for this vineyard? I've watered and I've nurtured and I've cultivated and I've built security and I've provided people to watch over it and cultivate it. God's invested throughout the generations in the establishing of a people and it will and has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And yet we recognize that fruitfulness is the indicator. Now, we won't look at it, and we'll probably look at it more in community group, but this corresponds with the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, the sower goes out to sow, and some seed fell by the wayside, and some seed fell on stony ground, and some seed fell among thorns, and some seed fell on good ground. And the other outcomes were completely fruitless. The outcome that had relevance, the outcome that mattered, was the seed that produced fruit. Some people say, you know, the parable of the sower speaks of um, different heart conditions. And, you know, um, you can have somebody who's in a place where um, their, their, their heart is kind of just hard and the seed falls on their heart. And then you'll have some who have got stony hearts and the seed falls on and it comes up, but then it doesn't last. And then those who have a thorny heart. And, you know, it's, it's good that you begin to see some kind of response. And even though it 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 produces leaves in the third ground where it's thorny, but the thorns came and they choked out those plants. And, you know, it's just a matter of that those people need more work. Actually, that's not what Jesus is communicating. Jesus is not communicating that at all. He's saying there are those people whose hearts are prepared by the Lord to receive the seed of his word and those hearts as it embraces the seed because remember the soil embraces the seed the seed being the word as the seed is embraced those hearts bring forth plants that bring forth fruit and some you notice and this is a troubling thing and it's another conversation for another day he says some 30% fruitfulness some 60% fruitfulness some 100% fruitfulness and you're like, what does that mean in reality? What does that mean in practice? What does a 30% fruitful Christian look like? Some of you thinking, me right here. <laughs> well, be encouraged. You're fruitful, isn't it? 
And that's the point. But there is an expectation of fruit. And if there is no fruit, well, he takes that branch away. Now notice it's called a branch. It's called a branch. And it even says, every branch in me. Now that's posed a problem for many people for many centuries. Because does this suggest that somebody can be a Christian and lose their salvation? Well, they are a branch and they're in him, but they don't bear any fruit. The scriptures are very um, vocal about the security that somebody is able to enjoy in Christ Jesus. Um, Philippians 1, verse 6. Philippians. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you, speaking to Christians, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. Now, Jesus never fails. It's neither in his job description or in his nature. He is unable to fail. And so he accomplishes, he fulfills what he sets out to do. Um, Another verse. Jude. Um, Let me give you the reference. I think it's 23. Jude, it only has one chapter, verses um, 24, particularly in 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless Before, who's going to present who? He is going to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, just in case you didn't know who was being referred to in that verse. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. It is the Lord our God who saves. And not just in the instant, but to the uttermost. He is the one who gets us home. Jonah said it like this in the Old Testament. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we cannot save ourselves in any sense 
And we therefore cannot keep ourselves in any sense. We are entirely reliant on the Lord to save us and to save us right to the end, to the uttermost. And the Lord never fails at what he sets out to do. And so the scriptures speak clearly that the Lord preserves those who are his. He keeps them. And so there is security in that. We can have confidence that Jesus will finish what he started in our lives if we trust in him. But that's the question, if we trust in him. There is an unfolding in this text that helps us to appreciate and to to work out this resolve. Does this suggest that someone could lose their salvation? Well, we know that would not be in keeping with scripture. So what else is going on here? Because how can a branch be considered in him but not bear fruit if it is genuinely in him? Let's look on. In verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus makes a distinction. He's speaking to the disciples who are his followers. They are, Judas has gone by this time, bear that in mind. And so even amongst the disciples, even amongst those who profess to, 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 to follow Christ, there was one who, by Jesus' own confession, as we saw in chapter 2 and also in chapter 13, one who was a devil. So even amongst those who were gathered in the inner circle, there was one who was not genuine. One who followed Jesus everywhere he went throughout the three and a half years of ministry and yet was not a genuine follower at heart. But as he now speaks to the disciples, he says, you're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And that is the totality of his message. The totality of of his teaching, the totality of his example, his, his um, active communication to them of truth. And this corresponds with chapter 13, when Jesus says, I must clean your feet. And Peter says, no, no, you can't clean my feet. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And so Jesus is, and Peter is just like, Lord, well, not just my feet, then my hands and my head, everything. Because he recognized that union with Jesus was the most important thing. And at that point, Jesus said the same phrase. You are already clean, but he made an exception at that point for Judas. But not all of you. And so... This says to us, there can be, among those who gather in the name of the Lord, those who profess to follow him, who even profess faith in him, there can be those who are not genuinely and truly and wholeheartedly committed to him. Now, that can cause us to feel a little nervous. And it ought to. You know, the Apostle Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 12, let a person examine themselves and see that they be in the faith, lest they be found reprobate. And so, 
these moments when we come against these hard, difficult texts are necessary and helpful for us to take time to reflect and examine, where am I really at? Am I just a fair-weather friend? Am I a, a fake follower? Or am I genuinely in union with Jesus? Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So you feel nervous. Mm. Am I clean? Am I a fruitful branch? Am I going to be cut off? Well, it's not about you. Jesus says, abide in me or remain in me or live in me, rest in me. And I in you. And that I in you is important because there are often those who, you know, you hear us say it all the time, you know, what well, Christianity is not a social club. Um, it's not just about us coming together and enjoying each other's company because that's easy to do. And the reality, I grew up in church and had that experience for years and years and years of my life where it was, it was like a community center. And we had excuse to get together. And so you could say that during that season of my life, I was abiding in the Lord. I was remaining. I was in the company of his people and in the hearing of his word and in the hearing of his teaching. But he wasn't in me. He wasn't in my heart. I was still king of my heart. I was still ruling my own heart. I hadn't submitted my heart to him as Lord and given him primary place. And so we're to abide in him and him in us. Don't allow yourself to be in a place of a false sense of security simply because you attend Ecclesia. Or because you're involved in church life. Because you're among his people and you're involved. Don't allow yourself to be in a full sense of security. Because when it comes down to it, that doesn't mean anything if he's not in you. And Jesus isn't someone who can just be given one room in the house. You know, I, I give him my Sunday mornings, or I give him my Tuesday evenings, or I give him my Saturdays when it's women's meeting, or whatever. But the rest of the time, I'm going to do my own thing and, and just hope that he blesses it. No, it doesn't work like that. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's not even that you give him the whole, you know, you give him every room in the house. No, you sign over the title deed, it's his house. And so if he wants to knock it down, he can knock it down and rebuild. If he wants to add an extension, if he wants to take the roof off, whatever he wants, it's his house now. We sign over our lives. We don't just give him part, but we retain ownership. And in the light of that, we understand, as it says, we cannot bear fruit by ourselves. 
um, one of our brothers in the ministry, Rob Dingman, we call him the surgeon, the way he so incisively dissects a text. And um, I remember him speaking about this and talking about the fact that it's interesting that it talks about trees bearing fruit and not producing fruit. Some people say producing fruit, and it's not a, a, um, a wrong thing to say, but it's not the most helpful thing to say. You know, he, he said, I remember him saying this, he said, when do you ever see trees flapping their branches and doing everything that they can to make fruit be produced? Where is the engine room in the life of the tree that is arduously at work trying to produce fruit? It doesn't work like that. The branches produce fruit because they're connected to the trunk. And the life, the verda, the nourishment, the nutrients, the life force comes from the trunk and through the branches. And by reason of that, fruit is, it it, it comes, it's born. And there's no energy or effort involved on the part of the branch. And so some of us are thinking, what do I need to do to produce more fruit? Just rest in Christ. Remain in him. Dwell in him and him in you. And you will be fruitful. You ever seen a branch that's been cut off, a dead branch, actually produce fruit? Leaves, flowers? No. But just by reason of connection, by reason of union being joined to, fruit is born. Now, what does it mean to abide? Well, in verse 7, and we'll come back to the other verses, don't worry. In verse 7, Jesus elaborates on that. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. So there is something synonymous with the Lord's words abiding in us and him abiding in us. There's a parallel there. There's a unity there. It's communicating the same thing in a different way. This is especially important for us as we are 2,000 years removed from physical relationship with Jesus. People say, well, Jesus isn't here right now. I mean, the disciples, they were sitting with him. They were in physical relationship. They were in conversation with him. But we can't do that. So what does it mean for us to remain in him and him in us? Well, here we go. Let his words remain, find their home, dwell Live in us. In that, we are abiding in him and he abiding in us. Jesus uses the term again in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so abiding in him is to abide in his love. And to abide in his love is to keep 
his commandments. So there's a sense of obedience. So it's not just knowing, it's not just hearing, it's not just agreeing, but it's also obeying. But obedience comes through, first and foremost, comes through relationship. It comes through a heart that has embraced Jesus, like the soil that embraces the seed of the word. It's not external modification. It's not personality alteration or social engineering. You know, people um, want to kind of improve the, the moral quality of certain communities. And so they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to tear down these grimy little estates and we're going to build really nice plush ones. And so they build really nice plush estates. So some of you know the estate down in Roehampton where New Life is. And it was seen as the utopia of, of, of social um, uh, uh, housing. And, you know, really spacey and green and everything. And this estate is going to be the future. And so on. And you guys, I was talking about what goes on down this estate down there. <laughs> social engineering doesn't change the heart. We say it all the time, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And so for, even for us, if we're considering what does it mean to abide, it's not first what we do, but it's who we are in our hearts. Where are our hearts at? Are our hearts given over to the Lord? Do we embrace Jesus with all of our hearts to the extent that we have surrendered our hearts, surrendered our lives, signed over the ownership of our life, over to him? Because once we're in that place, we will be fruitful. We will be obedient. Hmm. Now, I want us to bear something in mind as we consider these verses as well. Something really important. Jesus talks about the Father pruning branches that already bear fruit. Sometimes we can have an experience where we feel like we're going through such hardship, we're going through such difficulty that God don't love us. Maybe, maybe I'm just too sinful, um, just maybe God's fed up with, maybe I didn't even know God in the first place. And so we experience the pain of pruning. Pruning is to cut away. To cut away. And the idea is to cut away things that hinder fruitfulness. And that pruning can take the shape of uh, difficult circumstances by way of things that we experience things that go against what we desire, things that go against our happiness, things that go against our comfort. It can even involve not just things that happen to us, but things that don't happen. We don't get what we want. We don't get what we most desire. And there's a Lord, there's a sense of the Lord keeping away those things that are going to hinder our fruitfulness, even though they may seem really good for us. They may seem like, from our point of view, well, why not? Imagine how I could glorify God with uh, that new job or with that new car or with that husband or with that wife. 
And that's how we reason. But remember, Jesus said he's the vine and the father is the gardener. And the father, there's a certain objectivity that is being communicated. That the father stands apart from the vine and he examines the vine. And he determines according to his secret will and purpose what is going to happen to the vine, when and why. Which parts are going to get pruned? Which parts are going to get cut? And which branches are going to get broken off? It's his responsibility. And so all the vine does is submit. Just lay down in the, the farmer's, in the gardener's hand and lets him have his way. And you see, as we're being pruned, we can be... Um, we can be mistaken in thinking that this is God's judgment against us. He doesn't love us. Furthermore, I don't feel like I'm being pruned. I feel like I'm being cut off. I feel like I'm being cast away. Because remember, both get cut. The branch that's bearing no fruit gets cut off. The branch that's bearing fruit gets cut down. And as Jesus says that, he says, look, abide in me and I in you. Remain, even though it feels like God is far away, even though it feels like God is against you, continue to trust in Jesus. Continue to trust. And listen, I I can't, one of the reasons I'm standing here right now sharing this with you is because this is one of the most important truths that I see as a reality for Christians today. Because there are so many Christians who they experience hardship in the faith and their resolve is, well, you know what? Whatever God I've believed in that is is causing me this hardship ain't the God that I'm supposed to be following. Because he obviously ain't for me. And so I'm going to just divert my faith, divert my attention, divert my belief somewhere else. They say that most people that forsake the Lord, forsake Christianity, do so not because they have issues with the fundamental truths of scripture but they have issue with a God who doesn't do all that they want like they have hurts they have they experience hardship and I'm saying when you experience hardship remember these words remain in me and I in you and there's something at work the Lord is at work in this there is a positive outcome in view It's not for no reason. And Jesus reiterates, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And how often do we get ourselves into that place where we're thinking, look, you know what, Lord, doing this your way ain't working for me. I'm going to work it out. Nothing good can come of that. Let's not deceive ourselves. Nothing good. 
And this is what Jesus is saying. You can do nothing productive. He's not saying you can do nothing as in, well, you're going to have your hands cuffed behind your back and, you know, apart from him, we're just going to become incapacitated. No, we can try a thing, as they say. But nothing productive is going to come of it. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. There is no hope for anyone who forsakes Christ. Now, let me not say that in an ultimate sense, because it's important that we realize, especially when we're looking through human eyes, at human experience, we don't understand the divine working of God in a person's life. And we can look at a prodigal as a reprobate. We can look at someone, remember the prodigal said to his father, I want my inheritance, I want my inheritance, I want my way. I want to. I want to. I want to get what's mine. I want to be sorted. I want to be satisfied. And furthermore, I'm prepared to wish you dead, because remember, inheritance is only given after death. I'm prepared to wish you dead and don't care about you and take what's mine. I'm going to enjoy myself. And he went and he lived lavish life until it all dissolved and disappeared. And he was left on his face in the pig pen. And then he came to his senses. So he was a prodigal son. He was still a son of the father. Although he was out in madness, in the wilderness. So we can't look at someone. We can't, even somebody who's rejected the faith, as we would see it, and write them off ultimately. Because we don't understand the divine working of God in their heart. This is a really important text. Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 19. Oh, let me find that. Well, it's supposed to be 19. But God's firm foundation stands like the, fir- the foundation of God is, is, is immovable nothing can shake nothing can move the foundation of God it stands firm in the face of all apostasy it don't matter who departs from the faith the foundation of God stands it's bigger than any one of us it's bigger than all of us a whole generation could forsake the Lord it's happened before you look at it in the life of Israel generations for, but God is God he is not merely God because people affirm him to be so God is God every knee will bow and every tongue confess at some point or another that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a promise. That is a cast iron guarantee. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows. We will look at someone and we'll be confused. How could it be? They were going so hard. Now they're going so hard in the opposite direction. Like, what do we do with that? Well, we recognize that, yeah, they're apostate, as in they've chosen to depart from the Lord. But we pray that 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 is not their final end. And we know that it doesn't have to be. And so in that season, we cannot treat them as a brother. We cannot treat them as a sister. But we pray for that time, knowing that ultimately, 
There's only one of two options. They were never his in the first place, or they are his prodigal and will return. But that's, that's look, this tells us that we, don't, we can't determine that. As much as we want to, we want closure, we want clarification, we want clarity, we want to categorize, we want to put in boxes, but life's not like that. Especially when we're dealing with the secret will of God. And so, the knowing is God's part. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone, our part, who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. So there's apostates and people talking all kind of mad talk. You know what? We can't vouch for them. The Lord knows who they are and where they're at. But you know what? I know what my responsibility is. Seek the Lord while he may be found. But the ultimate end of anyone who dies in a place of refusing Christ, there is no alternative, there is no backup plan. Jesus is the plan. Not even just plan A, because there's no plan B. Jesus is the plan. He is the way. And the ultimate end is that they are cast off. thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned and Jesus is preparing the disciples you know what there are going to be some imposters and some frauds that move among you the scripture says Paul said this and he appreciated you could say it was an expounding on this this reality that Jesus communicated in, in 2 Corinthians that Satan comes as an angel of light so it's a verse we used to quote a lot back in the day. It's one that we don't really quote so often these days, but we have to understand. Satan comes as what? An angel of who? Darkness. <laughs> With horns and pitchfork and <laughs> I'm going to get you. <laughs> Satan don't come like that. He moves in a white suit. No. Uh, I'm, not <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making any associations to any physical preachers who wear white suits. They could do their thing in it. I don't know. I, I can't. I'm not, I'm not making any references to anyone. But I'm just, as a metaphor, right? Let's just get it right. The devil moves in a white suit. That's silk. <laughs> it's a metaphor. Don't send me no emails after the service. Oh, Pastor E, you know, you was a bit hard. No, no, no. Don't, it's not necessary. He comes as an angel of light. And so in that place, when it feels like, you know what, God's far away, am I even in union with him, remain. And Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now the second clause is determined by the first clause. It's not ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you because you've asked and whatever you want. It's in the context of us abiding in him and him abiding in us through his word. And so then what we're asking is going to be conditioned by that union. 
It's not a matter of, well, you know what? As I used to misquote this verse when I wanted my first car to be a BMW. I haven't even passed my test yet. Lord, if, I, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's what you said, Lord. And ask whatever you wish in the name of Jesus. Free series. Listen. That's not what it's about. This is about in those times when you feel like God is front, you can come to God in prayer. And you can bring these issues before the Lord. And you can bring your feelings before the Lord. And you can ask the Lord to help you in your time of pruning. And you can ask the Lord to strengthen you in your time of pruning. And you can ask the Lord to make himself known to you and comfort you in your time of pruning. Because this is the context. It's in the context of the pruning of the vine. Um, if there were ever a time when we need that encouragement to know that, you know what, God isn't a far. This pruning and this pain isn't evidence of God rejecting us. But no, he's welcoming us to come to him. By this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So, bearing fruit is evidence that a person at heart is truly a disciple. Bearing fruit doesn't make you a disciple. Bearing fruit is evidence that you are a disciple. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. You're under pruning. You feel like God don't love me no more. This pain is too much to bear. Remember these words. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Think about this. This is Jesus saying this as he's about to quote unquote experience the worst pruning that ever anyone could ever go through. He's about to experience the pain of the cross. And yet he recognizes that in view of that, he is loved by the Father still. That even though he goes through such a horrendous experience, it's not because the Father doesn't love him. But there's a necessary work being fulfilled. So we abide in his love, remain in his love, even when it doesn't feel like it. And in his love, we keep his commandments. It's because of our love for him that we do what he says. Again, doing what we says, doing what he says doesn't necessarily dictate or suggest that we love him. It doesn't make us love him. It's because we love him that we do what he says. And so, the Lord is actively at work, seeking the glory of the Father in the lives of his children. Even to the extent that he is willing for us to endure pain, pain that would cause us to feel like we're, when we've been rejected by God. 
Pain that would cause us to feel like we can't even pray anymore. Like God doesn't even love us anymore. And yet, Jesus counters that entirely. We're not rejected, so remain. Continue to trust. Continue to embrace. Continue to surrender. Continue to submit. Because it will result in a real productive and healthy Christian life. We will bear much fruit if we submit to the pruning of God and bring the Father glory. And not only will we bring the Father glory, but we will experience joy. They say weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We will experience a joy that is inexplicable. There is a joy to fulfilling the will of the Father. There is a joy to enduring pruning and seeing the productivity that comes from that. The fruitfulness that comes from that. There is a joy in that. And Jesus says, I've, I've told you this. That my, my joy, not even just our own joy. My joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. And so there's an upward direction, an upward trajectory that is being outworked as we experience the pain of pruning. And so we may be sore, but we can know that we are secure in the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. And as we remain continuing to trust in him, See, this, this, these, these verses can conjure up a, a kind of image of needing to get out there and go and do what Christians do. That's not what it's about in the first instance. That's the byproduct or the after effect. In John 6, to close, and I'll invite the team to come. When speaking with the religious leaders, Jesus said, if you were of Abraham, your father, if you were of Abraham, you would embrace me. You would do the works that Abraham done, but you're of your father, the devil. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Like we, all right, so we want to we do this because that's what we're about. We want to do this. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This is the primary thing of primary importance, that you believe in him, that you put your whole and complete trust in him who he has sent, who he, God, has sent, speaking of himself, the son. And so have you surrendered your life to Jesus completely and entirely? Are you a, a branch among branches that hasn't? Are you a branch among branches where actually you're not connected 
in a true life-giving sense. Because there isn't this kind of fruitfulness where you genuinely put your complete trust in Jesus. Because that's the first budding of fruitfulness. That actually you've recognized Jesus as Lord of your life and you've put your trust in him and you've repented of your own way and you've turned from your own life. You've turned from doing your own thing. And even if you have done that and you've experienced the pain of pruning or you felt confused at seeing those who have turned away, remain in Jesus. Trust in him. He loves you. His, his ear is inclined to your cry. Knowing that your experience will lead to fruitfulness. It, it has a point and a purpose that is productive. Ultimately to the glory of the Father. In such a way that will bring you joy. Continue to trust him. Let's stand. Father God, Lord, we experience pain. Lord, for some it's the the pain of seeing children just living wayward lives. For some, Lord, it's, it's the pain of divorce, the pain of bereavement, the pain of sickness, the pain of singleness, the pain of marriage even whatever that pain looks like Lord help us to embrace it as your pruning help us to appreciate that it's not because you don't love us but that actually you've got a greater purpose at work help us to remain to live in your love as you live in us Lord Jesus and to be fruitful branches and I pray Lord for those that are unfruitful Lord first and foremost in their their faith and repentance they've not done the first thing that they ought to do and that everything else that they do is merely foliage but not fruit it's just leaves but not fruit I pray Lord that you would so work in their hearts Lord that you would bring about a change of heart and a change of mind and that Lord they would see that they're in a very dangerous place place of potential full security but ultimately destined to be burned unless they really embrace you with their whole hearts because there's no other option Jesus you're the loving saviour like why would anyone not want you why would anyone not want to embrace you apart from the fact that we want our own way more help us Lord to be surrendered, to be committed and to experience the fullness of your joy in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.